Okay, hey, we're just gonna use this one, all right? Okay, so I've only done this a couple of times before, and uh, the last time was for a financial talk, and I thought it'd be a really good idea to just include as many even like relevant, like closely relevant, remotely relevant Bible verses in it. And for all the focus students who were there, I'm sure it was really um, enthralling when they're just trying to learn how to not eat Chick-fil-A as much. So, um, and the time before that was for a sermon on the misstep of colorblindness and race in the gospel. And that one, I thought, let's just pack as many details in here as we can possibly fit. And that made it a long one. So I'm trying a different mistake this time. I'm going to try to, there's a lot in here, but I'm going to try to make it really, really simplified. So we'll see if it works. So let's pray real quick. Lord, please just speak to us. Help us to hear your voice, your Holy Spirit. Help us to just to understand better how you desire us to be a temple filled with your spirit. And um, Lord, help us to hear a word that you have for our community and that you just direct our steps as a community. Thank you for all you do, for bringing us through a really crazy season. And um, Lord, we just ask that everything we do will glorify you. In my prayer, amen. Okay, so just to remind you, our sermon series this semester, as I understand it, is to investigate how God is consistent with the Old and New Testaments. In this section of the sermon series, we're looking specifically at the Holy Spirit. So my sermon is titled, The Temple... God wants to be with us. So when we ask for your sermon ideas and topics and questions, uh, we got a question about the temple. And I'm sure Brad and Leslie have had a little more experience kind of parsing out where these questions come from and adjacent questions to them that might be worth answering at the same time. And so here's kind of my attempt at a smattering of questions that I, th I think could be behind this and would be worth trying to figure out while we're talking about the temple. So um, how do we make sense of the temple in the Old Testament? Um, after, and we, then we see a seemingly decrease in significance as we move further into the New Testament. So what's the continuity there? Um, considering some of the things you just did and said about the temple, did God change his mind about it in some way? And why did we still retain temple language in the letters of the early church, if that's the case? Um, and does that language refer to us as individual temples? We each have the Holy Spirit in us. Or is it referring to the collective church? All of us have the Holy Spirit. We are a temple. So um, those are the questions we're going to try to sort of at least breeze by a little bit and uh, answer some of them. So uh, the temple is really central to the Old Testament, even before it was actually built. Um, so we're going to spend the first half of our time kind of tracing its story arc so that we understand what it is for in the Old Testament and what God's design was for it before we move into the New Testament and figure out why that changed and, um, and what, if anything, did change about God's intent for us. Um, so believe it or not, the temple actually has its origins in Genesis. Um, and while the creation story lacks the specific scientific detail many of us desire, which would be awesome, the details and patterns that are there are really dear and important to the Israelites and they end up being repeated and referenced a bunch of times throughout the Old and New Testament, especially in regard to the temple. So it also provides us with a really helpful look at the original intent that God had for creation. So here's some highlights. I'm not going to, I thought we could just read some of Genesis, but honestly, we're going to read like Genesis 1 and 2. And um, I thought I'll summarize it real quick. 
There's a few times I'll do that, if you'll forgive me, where we're, we're going to read some scripture and then also paraphrase others just for the sake of time and for your sake more than mine. So here's some of the highlights, I think, that are important today that we need to keep in mind about the temple starting off in creation. What was God trying to establish first before things went wrong? So one, it's made really clear to us multiple times that originally creation was good. This is cool because we've been talking about this through the worship activities and going through different phases of creation. Um, I guess we've kind of moved past that now, but that should be fresh in our minds a little bit. And then humans are made in God's image. We're given special responsibility over creation. It appears that God was both present and involved at that point in time. So he kept being a part of creation even after the initial seven stages of creating. Not meaning he's not involved now, but just he didn't just create and then leave. He kept being involved, like bringing the animals to Adam to name them. He was involved in that. He made Eve from Adam's rib. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. So he really wanted to be with us. I don't think it was just a, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show that it's not just create and then watch it from afar kind of deal. Um, And I think it's fair to deduce that originally humans were not really physically or spiritually separated from God in any way. Um, We were different, but we were, Adam and Eve were with God. And I think the distinction of physical and spiritual might not even matter at that point in this original version of God's creation. So keep those things in mind. Um, And so why is this the origin of the temple? It's because the common thread across many religions, um, Christian and otherwise, is just that temples are a place where God or gods occupy. So creation in the garden really was the first temple. God was there. He made it. He occupied it. And I think that's a really cool topic that I only know a little bit about. It'd be worth time for studying beyond that. I honestly would encourage you to do that, and I feel the same. Um, But many biblical scholars have researched and written about that and found strong evidence that the creation story seems to be intentionally written with temple-like language, that when the Israelites were reading it, when even other cultures were reading it, it would have language that was in a pattern of building a temple. So... That's how the story begins. A God creates a world, creates humans, and he wants to be part of it. And he wants to be with us. And then humans sin. They choose to go against what God designed, choose their own way. And the consequence is separation from God. They're exiled from the garden. So um, that's where we start off. But guess what? God still wants to be with us, even though we're scumbags. And as often as we characterize the Old Testament as God making rules and even having like lots of um, times where he is speaking truth against the Israelites, um, you could easily quiet, you could just honestly flip that and characterize the Old Testament more so as God over and over again trying different new ways of trying to be with the Israelites, um, not just a punishment judging rules kind of thing, but many times where he goes out of his way to try to be with us, with the Israelites. So the next stop on our temple tour is the, um, it's in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. If you want to look that up real quick on your phone, you can. I'll give you a second, but um, I'll just tell you what's sort of happening at this point in Exodus because we're not going to read all the context around it. So God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt at this point already. 
and he's given them the Ten Commandments and other laws. And then, he a- then God asks Moses to come back up the mountain again. And that's where we end up in chapter 25. I'm going to take a drink real quick. So chapter 25, verse 1 through 9. We've got an Exodus fan over there. Okay. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You to take my offering... Good to be back. <laughs> you're to take my offering from everyone who's willing to give. This is the offering you're to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ramskins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle, as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. So make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among you. I think that's really interesting. And he, how straightforward is that? Especially because God gives his people instructions then on how to build a tabernacle so that he can be with them. So he's the one that's initiating this. And while it's not the temple, this is very much the prototype temple. And this section of Exodus, gosh, this wind is killing me. This section of Exodus goes into all the details around building the tabernacle and also the beginning of Leviticus kind of formalizes a lot of the first law. And we're not gonna go into all of that. It's really enthralling to read uh, on a Friday night with your significant other. Um, But I think an important piece that we'll look at in Leviticus, you don't have to turn there, it's just super short. Leviticus 9, verse 22, just kind of shows what happens after they actually build this tabernacle. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. So God very much shows up. They build a tabernacle so he can dwell among them. And then he does show up. So that's, that's that first kind of prototype of the temple. Um, and then Leviticus goes into a lot of the details around offerings and sacrifices. But to just radically oversimplify that, the people sin over and over, just like we do, and the offerings allow them to get right with God again. So I know the rituals surrounding this seem very foreign to us, but for today, I feel like that's just the two things that we really need to highlight are in short succession, God gives them a, the people a way to be with him physically. There's a tent. They can go be with him. And then he also gives them a way to get right with him again spiritually. They can make a sacrifice and be right with him again. The two very things that they lost when they had to leave the Garden of Eden. They stopped being able to be with God in that same way. And they were not right with him anymore because they had sinned. So God is the one who does that. That's on God. And, um, okay, you guys still with me? 
So the next significant development of the temple is actually building the temple, finally. <laughs> so first, David wants to build it, but God doesn't let him because he's spilled too much blood in wars and stuff. So um, then God says his son will do it. And if you want to, you, there's so much to dive in about the temple and the building of it. There's a lot there. And um, once again, we're not going to be able to go away into that. But it's, very, it's modeled so purposefully after the creation story. There's carvings of plants and flowers. There's candlesticks and menorahs that are meant to be images like the tree of life. There's a lot intentionally put into the temple that is modeling after the creation story or the garden or the original temple. So, uh, and then the priests were given special responsibility over the temple, just like humans were given special responsibility to care for creation. So there's a lot that lines up there. There's even more than that that smarter people than me have done really cool studies about. So um, there's even a, be- like a pretty brief Bible Project video that crunches this down really well. I'd recommend it. Um, it's called Superman McDonald's Monster Truck. And just Google that. I'm just kidding. It's just called The Temple Bible Project, and it's very good. So the, now we'll go into just a little brief section of what happens after they build this real temple. Solomon builds this real temple in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. How similar is that to what we just read in Leviticus? They leave the holy place, and then God comes down very clearly in fire. In this case, it's a cloud, and he fills the temple. So there is actually, they build a place for God to dwell, and then he comes and dwells in it. Again, so he keeps, he makes another way. And now for the first time, they have this central place where they've been able to build a more permanent scenario for God to both dwell and to be able to get right with him when they make sacrifices there. So God's the one making this possible, and he's showing up to actually dwell in this place. And at this point, at least, the Israelites are very on board. They're like, yes, we're here. We love you, God. Like, WWJD, let's do this. Except that soon after that, Israel enters a period of straying from God over and over. So Solomon strays, even though he's the one who built the temple. Tons of kings after him stray. God warns them many, many times through several prophets, but they keep going and worshiping other gods and doing things that God says directly not to do. And then if we're taking cues from Genesis, you can guess what happens. The Israelites are exiled, just like Adam and Eve were, and then the temple is destroyed. So, a sad day. Then the Israelites were in exile for, in Babylon for about 70 years. And toward the end of that time, lots of people were becoming excited because of the cool stuff that was prophesied to happen after the exile was over. So things like a new temple for God to dwell in again. A Messiah would be nice. And then also God ruling over the nations. These are things that we see in a lot of the prophecies. And so we're in, you know, exile's over, starting to be over. People are getting excited because they're like, oh, yeah, maybe the stuff that people said is going to start happening. So a few people, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, lead different phases of attempts to make Jerusalem a happening place again. 
but essentially none of those things reached the expectations of the prophets that they, those exciting ideas they got from reading the prophecies and hearing them. And Messiah doesn't seem to appear yet at that point. God doesn't seem to begin ruling over all the nations yet. And most notably, the new temple that they do build disappoints the elders, the older people who knew about the previous temple. And the Israelites and we as readers don't ever see that moment where God fills the temple. They build this new temple. It's really mixed emotions. People aren't really sure if it's good or not. Some people like it, some people don't. But in general, we never see God come down in a cloud or in fire or anything like that. So they go through all this trouble to build another temple. And we don't really see any evidence that God goes and dwells there. So that's pretty much where the story arc of the temple in the Old Testament anticlimactically ends. It's dramatic. It has ups and downs. It sets up a ton of plot points and storylines for the New Testament to follow up. It's kind of like the Godfather Part 1. Or I guess actually for you Gen Z people, it's more like it's more like Avengers Infinity War. And then it's like it ends and you're like, oh, man, I have to wait a whole year for this. That's actually much better than Godfather Part 1. I should have started with that. Um, so let's recap that really quick. And then we can get on to the New Testament and get on to what it means for us today and why we're talking about this at all. So God creates a good world where people uh, can be with him and he can be with them. That's his plan A. So I think we've got to keep that in mind that so much of what happens and that we read about in Israel drifting over and over and over, it's like, oh yeah, this was never really God's plan A anyway. He wanted to be with us in a good creation. Humans keep messing it up. He creates new ways for humans to then be united with him and get right with him, and they don't follow those, and they mess those up. And then God tells the prophets that he's going to fix it again, and the prophets tell the people, but that has not happened yet. When we end the, new, the Old Testament, sorry. When we end the Old Testament, that stuff has not happened yet, and we are left on a cliffhanger. So, ultimately, having a building and making sacrifices did not help Israel to stay uh, following God. Having a building that they made for God, a place where they could also sacrifice things and become right with him again, did not actually help them do those things. They kept wandering, kept drifting. So it didn't, it didn't solve the separation that was caused by the fall, by the sin in the garden. So maybe it wasn't really a plan B, but maybe it more ends up being more like a temporary deal that God is just actually working on trying to get back to his plan A. Maybe a temple, maybe sacrifices was never really in the cards to be a sustainable way for Israel to be with God. So now we're in the New Testament. Um, we're going to examine a piece in John. Jesus is on the scene, and don't forget he's the Messiah, so check. Got one of those three main prophecy things now. <laughs> Messiah, a temple that God dwells in, and uh, God ruling over the nations. So we have a Messiah now. But also, um, there's yet another way. This is yet another way that God proves he wants to be with us. He has sent himself as a human. So he's providing another way to be with Israel in person. Um, and so this is a kind of trend where we just see this over and over and over. God really wants to be with us. And now he's actually there as a human. So we're going to look at a little cool controversial piece in John 
chapter 2, 13 through 22. So the Jewish Passover was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for, these, for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay, so I remember learning a really cool different angle on this story back in, I don't know if you guys remember, if anyone was here for a discipleship class, used to be a thing in focus. And Garrett Davis taught this uh, class over the gospel according to Mark and talked about this story. And I remember growing up thinking it was a very straightforward story where Jesus is God, Jesus loves God, and he loves the temple because it's supposed to be a dwelling place for God on earth. And he's just a patriotic Jewish man. I mean, what do we expect? And all these people are selling popcorn and peanuts and fidget spinners in the temple, and it's just offensive to him because they're outright disrespecting this building that he loves a lot in the capital, almost, you know? And so he gets mad. And that just kind of was the way I thought about that story a lot. And then it stuck with me from that class where we dove much more into it and analyzed it more closely. And the short version is that it's not just the people disrespecting a special building. Um, it's that the entire system isn't working and hasn't been for a long time. People can come there, sacrifice an animal for their sins, and then go back to living their lives, go on sinning and not following God. And that's just been the trend, okay? And as we finally, finally address here in a bit, with this system, people could also... There's a lot of exclusion happening. Gentiles were not allowed in the temple. And so it's not only that they were just kind of doing it and then going about their life sinning, it also was not a way to invite other people into it. So um, even the whips and the flipping tables aside, Jesus is actually here to upend the system in the first place and replace it. He's not just mad that there's selling stuff. He's, he's not about the system, period. And he's actually there to replace it himself. So he is going to be that sacrifice to cover all sin so they don't have to buy doves anymore or whatever. So, and he's a prophecy being fulfilled right under their noses and they don't even really know it. Um, so as we already know, that worked. Jesus actually did die as a sacrifice to cover all of our sins, okay? And that aspect of the temple is now taken care of. That one of the main pieces, us getting right with God, is now taken care of by Jesus, so, now we're finding to the part of how to understand the idea of the temple in the early church and how to understand it in our church today. Maybe only now is it starting to dawn on all of us this topic is in the Holy Spirit section of our sermon series because it has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now God's presence here on earth. God still wants to be with us. We get another version of that. God is going out of his way to be with us. When we repent and decide to follow Jesus, we each individually receive the Holy Spirit. 
And that is like a serious upgrade. I mean, that is night and day different from how it worked in the Old Testament. It also brings about a new set of possible misunderstandings, especially in our really individualistic society where now we each have the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Um, we each individually have access to God. So are we good just going li- through life on our own? What does it mean for the collective, for the community, especially if we're comparing it to the fact that the temple was for an entire people group, and now we have the Holy Spirit that seemingly is replacing that, and we have it as individuals. So I don't think it's controversial to say the Holy Spirit really is not for the individual in the sense that it is given to all of us. It is given to the collective and I think God clarifies that really well in the New Testament. So the first place that, we're gonna, that came to mind for me, thinking about how to just figure out what um, the intent of the Holy Spirit is that it's being given, is just when it first appears in Acts um, in the early church. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire. Sorry, my page just turned on me. That separated and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues, and the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one had heard them speaking in his own language. They were astonished and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all of those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? I'm going to stop there. I had a couple more, but I think that actually proves the point already. So um, I think the Holy Spirit's first big appearance like that has to be filled with purposeful stuff. I don't think there's a lot of just accidents. You know what I mean? God sent it. So, or him, I should say. And the Holy Spirit, first it appears to a group of believers. It's not just people on their own, you know, sitting at the end of the day or whatever in their own houses and stuff. It appears to the group that's gathered together. And I think it's really interesting that the first thing that's caused by the Holy Spirit is that they begin speaking in different languages and declaring the magnificent acts of God. The Holy Spirit immediately fills them and in a way flows out of them, causing to share, them to share God with other people that are around. So that's the first act of the Holy Spirit. It's all about this group there and overflowing to other people, not just a, hey, you've got your own individual Holy Spirit. You can take it out of the box, use it, put all your calendar dates in there. You can text your friends. It's not a little individual device we get. It is this thing given to all of us, given to all of them, and then immediately causes an effect of outpouring to other people. So I think that brings up a really important goal of God's that Israel seemed to have neglected in the past. Beyond just having a temple to allow themselves to have access to God, God wanted them to be a blessing to other nations. And we stand the chance, I think, of failing in the exact same way as Israel did if we don't prioritize sharing God with other people. The Holy Spirit prompted sharing right out of the gate. It was like they couldn't help it. They just immediately started declaring the magnificent works of God, immediately. So there's another great example of this in Ephesians. Um, I'll just read part of it, but this entire chapter actually speaks to this. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. 
he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him, you're also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So Paul makes this so clear about we are the temple together. We're built together, unified together as a temple for the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about each individual person. And he's also talking about it being built on the foundation. I just it's, There's so much clarity there, and I think it's so purposeful and would be connections that I think people hearing uh, and reading this letter would have been making immediately that get a little lost on us not having that background of the temple. That's not part of our culture. It's not part of our, you know, legacy as a people group as much. So um, the Holy Spirit unites. He unites and he builds the church into a new kind of temple for the Lord. He brings new people in, united, uniting people from far and from near. So I think that's cool, too. That immediately it adds to the, the aspect we saw just previously where he started, they started speaking to people in different languages uh, here, Paul's including that too, talking about reaching people who are far away and who are near, uniting other people, inviting people in, this part that Israel didn't really seem to ever get in the Old Testament. Peter also really talks about this in a cool way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. And this is really the good stuff. I feel like if you miss the Old Testament kind of story arc of the, the temple, that's something that I think other people can do a really good job explaining um, and diving way into. But this is the real meat, I think, Peter and Paul and just in, in the letters in the New Testament, I think it just makes it really clear what, what they mean when they talk about the temple. Um, we just have to do a little more homework than the people receiving these letters would have had to do. So, First Peter 2, verses 2 through 10. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up in your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come, sorry, I just read that so weird. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you've tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone Rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believed in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word they were destined, they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a God's people, 
you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So I really like this. I feel like, especially in verse, it's up in verse four, three, four, five, living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter weaves in the same stuff about sacrifices and being made right, but through Jesus Christ this time, and we're being built together into a temple. And we're obviously not talking about a building anymore, it, and Paul wasn't either. So um, there's an invitational aspect to this also. I think in many of these situations where the disciples talk about the Holy Spirit and describe this new temple, there's, gosh dang, the, way, the wind will get whatever direction I'm not looking, honestly. Um, it's just really community-focused. The Holy Spirit, when they talk about it, is uniting. He's bringing. He's inviting. He's, he's focused on the people. And in this case, in this First Peter passage, he says, you were not a people, and now you are. So God is making together a new people group of everyone that he's inviting in. It's open to everyone. I think our individualized reading of some parts of the Bible would probably surprise the New Testament authors because this would have been something that was just core to them and was really integral to their culture. They thought of themselves as a people group. I also was thinking that there's just a really intensely practical element to all of this, to think about the community and the collective. What do you think has a better chance of fulfilling the goals of the temple? Is it me or you on our own as individuals? Or is it all of us together, united and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Only together, I believe, only together as a community with the Holy Spirit, is it possible to fulfill and even maybe exceed the goals of the temple, exceed the things that the temple never quite became and that the Israelites never quite understood or stuck to very long. So here now with the Holy Spirit, we can be a temple that's more than a place for God's presence. We can be a people of God's presence where God himself does the work of sacrifice and has already done that in Jesus. And so we have, we've gotten right by him already and he's already covered our sins. And together with the Holy Spirit, we can be an open and inviting temple where there's always more room. I think this connects really easily with the bell that Leslie was ringing last week on the fruits of the Spirit. They are relational. It's impossible to experience many of them on your own. The Holy Spirit fills us. It overflows us. It moves us outward. And just to wrap up some of the other loose ends that we've kind of left dangling as we've gone, remember the other prophecies from the Old Testament that we touched on. They, they were expecting a new temple for God to dwell in, a Messiah, and a God ruling over the nations. God ruling over the nations. So we got a Messiah. And then strangely enough, after Jesus' time, the temple gets destroyed and never gets rebuilt. Still is not rebuilt now. But God did build a very different kind of temple, right? And that's something we're told already in the New Testament. Um, but it's, it just seems so purposeful. God was not confused. He wasn't thwarted. This is his plan. And he was telling prophets back in the Old Testament that this is what he's going to do but they just didn't quite understand what was going to happen. And this new temple that's been built, God's Spirit clearly dwells in it. We saw the Holy Spirit come like tongues of fire, just like we saw the cloud come, fill the original temple, just like we saw fire come down and consume the sacrifice of the tabernacle. 
So we've seen this pattern of knowing for sure that God is coming to dwell in whatever temple each time. And we know when that happens, and it has happened here. So now we are a new kind of temple that isn't a building, and God does dwell here with us and in us. But what about God ruling the nations? I think that um, revelation gives us a really hopeful look at this. The future God is working toward is back to his original plan A, to live and dwell in his creation and a good creation and with his creation. So I picked two sections, two little passages of Revelation to look at that give us a glimpse into God's plan for the future. So the first one is Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels around the throne, along with the elders and four living creatures, fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the next selection is Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. So that's where I want to leave us in terms of just this story arc that I tried to paraphrase chunks of, read chunks of. It's just that God had a plan A to be with us. Humanity messed that up. He gave a lot of plan Bs, seemingly, but in a lot of ways, his plan A never really stopped being what his desire was for. He really still always wanted a creation that is good, that he can dwell in, that he can be with us. And so he's gone to great lengths over and over and over through the Bible to make that a, a possibility. So we have a really hopeful future. And for now, the Holy Spirit is... Uh, what we have. We are it. We are the temple. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with us. And we have work to do in a way in the sense that um, if the Holy Spirit is filling us, it should be overflowing us and causing us to, just like we see in the early church, um, pour out to other people and invite other people in to this temple, invite other people into this way where they can dwell with God and be made right with God. So that is all I had prepared. And there's so many things that probably could be answered a little bit better. And so if anyone has any questions, I'm absolutely happy to attempt to respond to them. Like Leslie talked about last week, question and response. 
And so anything I didn't give clearly, if there was a, a verse someone missed that they'd like me to say again, anything like that, I am totally down to try. <laughs> we don't have a, oh, do we have a mic for that? There's no one behind me anymore. I think we have a mic for that, but if we don't, you could just yell it and I'll repeat it. I'll give you 20 more seconds. Any questions? I really did expect some because, you know. Okay, I'm going to pray, I think. Or is there going to be shepherd, a shepherd prayer? No? Okay. Lord, thank you so much for the kind of God that you are, one that from the very beginning wanted to be with us and not for anything that we did, not for anything that we deserved. And Lord, thank you for being a God who went out of your way so much to be with your people, to give them ways to get right with you, and for being willing to not just offer options, but put yourself here on this earth and be willing to sacrifice yourself for us. Lord, I just ask that whatever truth in this you need each of us as individuals and as a church to hear and take with us, that you'd put that in our hearts. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would um, direct our steps as a church here in this town, uh, the people you place in our lives. Lord, help us to invite people in to be um, not making the same mistakes that, that Israel is making, but to be this new temple that you've called us to be. And Holy Spirit, please fill us and guide us and um, be what makes our decisions, be what leads us, be what uh, we speak out of, Lord. Um, we humbly ask you just to be the one who's in control. And all these things we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.